0: Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Professor Inderjeet Parmar, who read sociology at the London School of Economics and political sociology at the University of London. His doctorate from the University of Manchester was in the fields of political science and international relations. He's taught at the University of Manchester, where he served as head of the Department of Government. He's currently visiting professor at LSE and visiting research fellow at the Rothermere American Institute, Oxford. His latest book, Foundations of the American Century, Ford, Carnegie, and Rockefeller Foundation, in the Rise of American Power was published in 2012 by Columbia University Press and reissued in paperback in 2015. He's currently working on a long-term research monograph critiquing the post 1945 liberal international order, presidents and prime ministers at war, race, empire, and elitism in Anglo-American wars from Korea to the wars on terror. You can find him uh, on Twitter at U.S. Empire. Welcome Professor Farmar. Great! Thank you very much for having me on. I've been a, a fan of your work uh, and commentary, and you know, perhaps to to start, you you track empire as your Twitter handle says, namely, oh. you track U.S. <laughs> empire. Uh, if you could give us, uh, you know, your thoughts on where the world is today and uh, your take on how you see see the empire today, what it looks like, and what oh. are its uh, power centers?
1: Oh. Well, I guess the empire is a very, is a very big, broad, loose term, and and I think I chose the handle uh, for my Twitter account at US Empire as a kind of provocation um, uh, to sort of wind people up a little bit. But but also kind of recognizing the inequalities and hierarchies of power, uh, which are operational in the world today and which have um, are currently under the umbrella of the United States, which openly defies or de- denies the idea that it could possibly be an empire. And that if it ever is an empire, it basically is an empire of liberty, That it effectively is the kind of guardian of freedom and uh, peace and progress and so on. So I guess really what you've asked me to do is probably impossible uh, to the state of the world today. But I guess if we just sort of center it on on the United States as a kind of core power of the liberal international order, then what we can see is a kind of, if you like, there is a deep long-term tendency or a set of tendencies which are quite all-encompassing, and then there are kind of temporary blips, um, troughs, and um, and peaks, <clears throat> which sort of come along according to various forms of uh, kind of events or crises. So, for example, at the moment with the Russian uh, war on Ukraine, uh, there is or was at least until quite recently, a certain level of triumphalism. That in a way that the, the the US under Biden was back, that the US was now more respected. It was standing up for sovereignty of Ukraine. It had unified an increasingly fragmented relationship with the European Union. Uh, uh, President Macron had declared NATO brain dead not so long ago. NATO is reinvigorated Uh, Finland and Sweden are applying to join, um, as well maybe others. So that is to say, at at one level, there is a kind of resurgence and a kind of almost a triumphalist feeling that Putin, by what he's done, has reinvigorated the West, uh, the Western idea, and the Ukrainian people are considered civilizationally more Western uh, than they might have been before. But on the other hand, what we can also see is that there are a deep series of crises as well, which despite these blips, they have a kind of, it's a bit like the, the iceberg beneath the surface of the water. That hasn't changed. And the, the key thing there is that there is a kind of global and national manifestations of crisis. And that crisis of legitimacy at home uh, couldn't have been more starkly portrayed than it was on the 6th of January 2021, when for the first time, people broke in to the Capitol building and sacked it and tried to kill the vice president and anybody else they could get hold of and so on. And those hearings which have started in the last week or so are, are illustrations of that, that the U.S. is on the brink of a, a serious abyss. Uh, some What some people say, may say uh, is uh, a kind of situation which resembles the 1860s, um, possibly the 1960s, and so on. So there is a deep crisis there, but there's also a deeper crisis, if you like, of the whole globalized order, which the US championed uh, after the end of the Cold War in particular. And that, if you like, had a number of positive benefits, broadly speaking, because it did lift a large number of people out of poverty and so on, and we know, we know those arguments, economic growth and so on. But at the same time, the lifting or the delegitimization of state interventionism, of national policy, of the idea that the state has social responsibility and so on, in most countries, and the elevation of the corporation as the core of power, as the as the driver of economy and of progress, that has a massive effect on enriching relatively few people at the expense of very, very large majorities of people. So that is to say that the domestic and the global crises are heavily driven by hierarchy and inequalities increases and that the levels of um, resistance, which is inequality, poverty, and so on, uh, and which is also resistance to concentrations of political power, particularly behind corporate agendas, That has created its own crisis of empire. So I think what we broadly have is a whole series of crises. Some of them are, if you like, inherent to that particular hyper-globalized economic system and the philosophy of neoliberalism. Uh, And others are to do with the fact that this period of growth in the last 30 years or more has also generated competitive in-system powers. In effect, they grew up within the system. They're attached to the UN, the WTO, the IMF, the World Bank, and the core liberal economies. But at the same time, they are not of the West. Their consciousness is different. Their history is different. Their culture is different. And they are also seen to be different and non-Western by the core liberal powers, too. So what you've got then is not only those crises caused by, if you like, directly by corporation and the market, but also a more competitive interstate system. Uh, And in particular, the rise of, from the 1950s right through the 70s and into the present century, the rise of the global south, both as an economic commercial, but also increasingly a diplomatic actor, an actor with regional blocks and alliances and different relationships to the West compared with before. And this is illustrated with the sanctions regime, which the U.S. has tried to push across the world, but has failed to do so, particularly in the global south and even among its own allies. Uh, Israel, for example, has been very reluctant uh, in its kind of uh, responses to the Ukraine crisis. Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, Dubai, and uh, Pakistan, Turkey, and many other countries, India, which is a kind of core part of that liberal order as well, uh, they haven't really reacted. And if you look at South Korea, Japan, they have such deep relations with China, which is so close to Russia, and so on, that this this fragmentation, uh, this deep underlying crisis of order and power and legitimacy, despite the, the boost from the Ukraine war, actually is continuing. And the Ukraine war itself is deepening many of those crises because of the cost of living, the price of energy, and so on. So. I think we do have a very large number of very dark kind of omens and uh, kind of tendencies and happenings, uh, which do suggest that there are very important and serious dangers in the world situation that we're in
0: at the moment. A message from our sponsors. It seems we're headed for economic collapse, a dystopian social credit system, even another world war. As a longtime expat myself, I've secured multiple passports, getaway locations, foreign financial accounts, and escaped to the sunnier shores of Mexico. Mikhail Thorup of the Expat Money Show can help you do the same and become great reset proof. He's hosting the Expat Money Summit with 30-plus experts that'll help you reclaim your freedom in a time of upheaval and uncertainty by moving your life, business, and wealth offshore. Themes include securing your Plan B safe haven, offshore banking, decentralized finance, second passports, and much more. Protect yourself and secure a new life abroad. Register now for free at expatmoneysummit.com or don't and enjoy eating bug burgers in your smart city. If you do find yourself stuck in a smart city, the Nomos app will help you survive COVID-1984 and the Great Reset. Nomos is a time bank that can be used by communities anywhere in the world. You just need to talk people into using it. I've spoken to the developer who is passionate about creating solutions for surviving and thriving in the apocalypse. Nomos is available in English and Spanish, so hurry and visit nomos.net before they roll out the cashless Society and put you in the algorithm ghetto. And don't forget to fund geopolitics and empire. You can leave a donation, except on Patreon or PayPal, which have banned us. Book a consultation or become a member. Yeah, and as you say, global south today, people are calling it, you know, the rise of the multipolar world. And you touched on a number of issues I I wanted to get into. But um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is you, you write and speak on the empire's uh, foundations and, and think tanks or elites knowledge networks and for a long time i've been aware of how ngos and think tanks and foundations are involved in say you know managing democracy or or assisting the empire and i think not enough people follow these power centers which is great that that you do and perhaps if you could just tell us a bit about uh you know the role of these foundations and elite networks in uh, as you know centers of power of the empire as well as advancing uh it
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, Yeah, this is an area which I've been working in and thinking about for a very long time. And in a way, what it argues is a very simple point, that knowledge is power. We all know it. We know that term. It has been around for centuries. Knowledge is power. But the knowledge which it takes uh, to organize a superpower is, if you like, is organized knowledge. It is systematic investment in the production Uh, and the dissemination of knowledge through a whole series of institutions and networks which operate at practically every level of the political system. And at the core of it, if you like, is a consensus-building project. It's a consensus-building project of the core elites within the United States in particular, for example. So the core elites being military, academic, diplomatic, corporate, legal, banking, and other, and that is to say that these are the kind of, if you like, the the people who have the greatest and the highest positions, the power of decision, and that, in effect, they make a kind of determination, based on huge corporate wealth, of the kinds of knowledge which ought to be produced, the kinds of questions that need to be asked, the problems, and who is to define what is a problem and what is not a problem, and, in effect, to kind of forge a future which centers their interests as the core American national interest. And so whether they act at home or abroad, that, that kind of, if you like, that empire of the mind, which, if you like, is a very important material force. It's, a, it's in huge investments in universities, in bricks and mortar and libraries, programs, syllabuses, chairs, departments, conferences, professional associations. Journals, publishing houses. So, knowledge, if you like, isn't something we just sit in a nice, comfy armchair and have a few thoughts. This is actually a sort of the factory production of new ideas, old ideas, repackaged ideas, and the dissemination of them at all levels of our lives and through a variety of institutions. So, there are obviously schools, there's mass media, there's universities. There are think tanks and there are all forms of other kinds of organizing research institutes, uh, corporate institutes and so on. So if you like, what I suggest is that there's this this institution at the center of the building of consensus and hegemony, which uh, uh, the elite knowledge network and that elite knowledge network in effect is a kind of living organism which produces and disseminates knowledge uh, and attracts attention because of the prestigious character. Of the network and its individuals and institutions themselves. So that when any crisis breaks out, for example, they they are the ones who supply the talking heads to the mass media. They're the people who write the op eds in the major outlets. They're the voices you are likely to hear. And in a way, they are kind of, it's a bit like having an, an army in a garrison. There's a sort of combat readiness. Uh, and then there's the routine production of everyday knowledge, and so on, which is what goes on. And but when crises like the Ukraine crisis break, uh, or whatever, then there is has been in this past investment, uh, which then is sort of deployed. So I've done some recent research, for example, to add to to the the context of the Ukraine crisis, and I just looked at one particular foundation, the Carnegie Corporation of New York, uh, just in the last eight years from 2014 the Crimea crisis to the present crisis, and they spent $51 million, just one foundation, $51 million on investing in Russian and Russian-related subjects since 2014. That $51 million has gone to a range of universities, a range of think tanks, and a range of other bodies, in effect, creating the basis of knowledge, which then can be deployed and so on and so forth, as it, as it was So we saw as soon as the invasion broke out in February, I mean, it's quite incredible. There was a kind of mobilization of knowledge, information warfare uh, at the same time. So this is a real powerful material force. And in a way, it's a kind of, you know, you could call it knowledge for combat. It isn't just knowledge sitting by itself for people to come and choose to take it. It is thrust right into everybody; that you cannot ignore it, and it 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 enters in every kind of way. So, one function of the elite knowledge network, if you like, is the building of consensus and the drawing of boundaries of what is legitimate debate. Another one is the disorganization uh, of the opposition. It is to effectively prevent the coalescence of a coherent opposition or resistance or alternatives, so that if you occupy the ground of knowledge production through practically every media possible, then in effect, you crowd out alternative media, alternative voices, because they just don't have the level of resource which the mainstream, if you like, the big corporations and the governments and so on have. So that makes it much more difficult for those who are resisting voices and so on to coalesce together to build unity to build movements and so on and what is really impressive to me is that despite all these resources over such a long period of time on a such a relentless basis that there is still so much resistance still so much opposition and the struggle to find alternatives so i always find myself when i study elites i see when you look at their papers their private papers over the past 100 years or more the papers that they don't think are going to get out before they're passed away and so on, they are very afraid. They are actually afraid. They they foresee resistance and they, they see the world as a kind of, they're under siege in various forms. And whereas people outside of that kind of feel that we're alone, we're isolated, we can't do anything, we're powerless. Compared to but internally, I, I guess that spurs them to huge amounts of action because I think they see that. By just virtue of living, people will disagree with what is going on. And when things get much, much worse, when economic crisis or financial crisis or wars break out and so on, you know, just just being alive means you, you, you can't actually carry on in the old ways. And so I think those two functions are really powerful functions of knowledge, organized knowledge, uh, elite knowledge for empire and so on
0: yeah i'd agree with you um the mainstream news is losing its its status that's why they're attacking uh independent media people just don't believe it anymore and with with, for for good reason and i was mentioning before the interview as well that uh i've been attacked by these elite networks you know the associated press and atlantic council uh have written negatively um about me and then taking off some uh, deplatforming me from some of my sources of uh finance and uh, as well just just exactly what you're talking about just for my personal example where here in mexico i taught at the top um institute basically the mit of mexico and Uh this institution very corporate very um liberal imperial globalist looks looks up to the empire and wants to emulate it and 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 Uh copy it and they would bring you know Hillary Clinton would speak at the online uh, graduation you know when, when we had the online graduations at the pandemic here uh you know all, all of these big names Bill Gates Hillary Clinton Al Gore mm. former former American military generals and so exactly as you say abroad this is how they uh project that imperial mind and you know get the mexican elites and and, right. and, and right. youth to think in this way and advance the goals of the empire and uh i wanted to get your thoughts on China, because you've been doing fascinating research on China. You wrote a piece on the role of the Ford Foundation's transformational elite knowledge networks in China. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I'm seeing a debate today on whether there is, you know, we see this animosity between the U.S. and China Mm -hmm. uh, overtly. uh, But as well, we see sort of behind the scenes, uh, the power structures working closely together so there's there's a seeming uh part paradox but let me just read a quote from um your article which i'll include in the description where you say quote china's elites were gradually integrated into the US-led order from 1978 with a special role played by elites knowledge networks built by the Ford Foundation, particularly in Chinese eco- economic policy reform, diffusion of free market thinking, and the development and teaching of economics as a technocratic policy-oriented academic discipline. Ford-funded Sino-American elite knowledge networks closely connected with Chinese globalizing elites, with and through which liberal tendencies penetrated China, the elite knowledge networks that helped penetrate China at the invitation of Chinese political elites suggest that Sino-U.S. relations may be better characterized by inter-elite collaboration on shared agendas rather than by realist forecasts of all but inevitable military conflict, end quote. And, uh, you know, what's your assessment of the U.S.-China uh, relationship?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I the reason I did that, and this was a joint article with uh, a professor from China, Xu Hongguo. Um, and uh, she did really good research with me on that. Um, The reason we decided to write that article or do the research for it uh, and looking at Ford Foundation uh, was because a lot of the debates in international relations at at conferences and so on were really just narrowly focused around a debate between liberals and realists. And so one side talks about sort of economic interconnections as a source of peace, and the other one talks about rising uh, and declining hegemons as a source of warfare neither of them really looked to any degree at the kind of interconnections. so rather than seeing china and the united states as two billiard balls which clack against each other uh, i thought well it'd be interesting because i remember when i was doing the book i saw a lot of uh, archival material with titles which i could not look at in the papers then Uh, which are about China. And I thought, this is interesting. (laughs) You know, I thought these supposed to be, you know, kind of rival systems and so on and so forth. Uh, But when we did look at those papers, what we found was, of course, that that the empire of knowledge uh, is vast and always seeking to expand. And one of the kind of secrets, if you like, of American organized knowledge, corporate knowledge or corporate foundations, is that they are? They have they maintain a fiction which is very useful of being private institutions, even though they think just like the American state, and they're so imbued with their mentalities and definitions of the world and so on. But they are formally private. That enables them to put forward themselves as neutral, uh, just helpful development agency, promoting education, giving grants, and so on. And who can argue against education? Who can argue against uh, here's some money to build a school here or there or start a new department in a university, etc.? And so, in a way, there's a kind of softly, softly image that they project. And they effectively had been looking at China as a great asset to the Western world in various ways from the 1950s onwards after the revolution. So, even when China was frozen out of the United States system and not allowed to take its seat in the United Nations and so on, it actually, the, the, the sort of Chinese studies in the United States and elsewhere were being funded. Now, st- understanding of history, of politics, of the party, of its economy, its ideas, and so on, its population and everything else. And in a way, in a way the committees that they formed between China, China scholars, and American scholars in the 60s and into the 70s Help to sort of lay the ground for the rapprochement between China and the United States under Nixon and Kissinger in the 70s, and then once Mao is gone, and this is what they're looking forward to, when Mao is no more, uh, and the pragmatic, the kind of gang of four, the, the sorry, the pragmatists are in, and who's they've been kind of tracking for a long time. I think one of the less known facts about the Chinese Communist Party is that a very Sizable proportion of the Communist Party was made up of business people. And these people were not ideologically wedded to communism. They were wedded to a government which could end corruption, which would enable economy and so on, and that the private sector in China continued to operate throughout that period. So what you've got then is people who are not ideologically fixated around communism, but an efficient kind of state which enables growth and so on. And so these pragmatists, um, it was them uh, that the U.S. and others were looking to come to power after Mao's passing. And that's, in effect, what happened. And so it was from then that, if you like, the Chinese leadership, the new Chinese leadership wanted to open up to the world, join the world economy and was out there shopping for ideas, they went shopping to Scandinavia, to Germany, to Yugoslavia, to Japan, uh, to Western countries everywhere, to try to see what kind of economy do we want, and and so on. So in a way, they exercise agency, but bodies like the Ford Foundation spent tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions, in fact, from the 1970s to the 2000s, in the way in which you described. The teaching of economics, that's a really fundamental technology, if you like, because you switch from Marxist economy through to what is called Western economics, and is now called economics in China. The Western bit has been dropped. So modern economics is the economics of what we would recognize uh, as neoclassical economics. It has Keynes in it. It has got other, Friedman in it. He went over there as a part of that thing as well. So what you got then is organized knowledge, building programs, university departments, PhD students, fellowships to go to the United States universities and to return, the building of um, journals as a way of disseminating those ideas. And then as those students graduate through the system, they then enter the ministries, such as the economic reform uh, ministries and so on, and they begin to exercise some sort of uh, agency there too. But they're very much pushing against an open door. If you like, the Chinese elite from the late 70s into the 80s onwards is no longer the revolutionary power backing uh, national liberation movements in Africa and elsewhere. They're no longer wedded to that version of China's role in the world, uh, which was the dominant one under Mao, but much more is an integrationist one, which will be focused around modernization. Of the economy, largely through market-style reforms, at the same time as retaining a degree of socialistic statism, which I think they've kind of retained, and there's big tensions between those tendencies, which are reflected in the political factions and so on, which operate within the Communist Party and so on as well. So, for a time, I think what you could say is that this was a very healthy development for the US and the West because it basically removed China as a thorn in the side of Western power and a supporter of national liberation and so on and so forth. Um, But of course, China becomes more and more powerful as integrated. Its economy is kind of, is absolutely huge and growing very rapidly. And therefore it becomes much more of a challenger economically. But of course, economic and financial power also means a greater level of a sort of self-confidence, uh, assertiveness, and greater levels of military power, too. And so in, in that regard, then, China has, is, has emerged as a potential, in some respects, it's already a superpower. In other respects, it's a little bit behind. Um, but it is a, a a challenger, and it does have a slightly different idea about capitalism, particularly state capitalism, compared with neoliberal market-driven Corporate capitalism, and I think therefore it is seen as as a major kind of economic competitor, but also as a possible kind of um, builder of different alliances in the world system, particularly through the Belt and Road Initiative, which uh, clearly isn't as great as it's made out. It's a little bit more fragmented and so on, but nevertheless represents quite a massive global uh, global project to unify and. Uh, economies and so on, and increased Chinese economic power. So uh, so in that regard, then it's, it's emerged uh, as a major power under the auspices to some extent of the West and the US. And so in that regard, you look at the level of investment uh, you know, in production by the United States and Western countries, uh, Apple and many other companies as well, it's huge. It's absolutely massive. China owns huge amounts of American dollars and American debt it enables the American military program to be, to be able to spend as much as it does by holding that amount of debt, that amount of dollars, as does much of the rest of the world. So what you've got is clearly at the level of military power and military interests, particularly in the region, in the southeast, South and East China Sea, Taiwan, you've got a degree of geopolitical competition. Um, but at the same time, there's a very great deal of, economic interdependence, or at least interpenetration. Um, and China needs the world economy in order to continue. And if China were to disappear, the world would go into a massive re- recession, probably unknown ever, uh, if Russia and its relatively small economy can have an effect that it has since the Ukraine war started. then the Chinese economy is actually much, much more pivotal the global economy. So I don't think that the United States has a vested interest in the collapse of China, but I think they do want the subordination of China as a kind of junior partner who would then not constitute anything like a threat. And when we look back to the 80s and 90s, you'll remember Japan and its kind of uh, the fears around Japan. Uh, as a kind of industrial superpower, which are going to replace the United States and so on, it never came to pass. But a lot of the rhetoric about Japan was very similar to the kind of rhetoric we hear about China. I think it's it's different um, because obviously Japan could not exercise military power to anything like the extent that China may be able to do. But there are these various tensions. So the issue is how to explain the tensions and how to explain at the same time these interpenetrations. And so, in the article that you were referring to, uh, Xu Hong and I looked at sort of the theories of Gramsci and Karl Kautsky, and Karl Kautsky's, Kautsky's idea of ultra imperialism, where ruling classes of different countries, just like the CEOs of big different countries' corporations can often get together as cartels or allies, because they have shared interests in certain respects um, between them, and they also share an interest in basically making sure that revolutionary struggles, radical movements, resistances are also, like, to globalization and other forces, are are sort of curtailed as much as possible. So we kind of try to put it into that context.
0: Yeah, you're echoing yeah, the, the same... The same um, <clears> the <throat> sentiment that some of my past guests, such as uh, Professor William I. Robinson, has said, oh. similar as was as well as Dr. Francis Boyle, who I re- recently had on, uh, and there's been talk for the longest time of. The decline uh, of U.S. empire uh, of the Anglo-American empire. I've spoken to cultural historian Morris Berman a, uh, a number of times, who lives here in Mexico. He wrote a trilo- trilogy on the collapse of American empire. I've spoken to Johann Galtung, who's uh, wrote about the fall of the U.S. empire. So we've got this idea for decades that you know the, the Western empire is declining, uh, and then as as you say, we have now this talk of this multipolar world r- rising uh you know this eurasian sort of If we if we cite Mackin- Mackinder, right this world island mm. coming about so you know what are your thoughts on that as and as well as you mentioned mm. you know there's a lot of talk today about world war three that you ukraine could, mm. could be a world war three scenario and we're seeing a lot of stuff heap, heap, mm. uh, heat 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 uh, around uh taiwan and so we've got this potential uh for e- e- as you said even though there's this elite Penetration. At the same time, I feel there there exists a tangible uh, world World War Three scenario. So, your thoughts on the decline of the West, the rise of the East, and you know whether there is a real World War Three uh, scenario? Yeah,
1: I think yeah, yeah I mean, you're absolutely right. That I think what what I find most uh, interesting and perplexing and frightening as well is that the I suspect every generation believes that the crises. In the world that they observe and they live through are worse than any previous one. Um, I've read about crises in the past and so on and so forth, but it does seem to me that the number of forces at work in the world, the number of crises which are going on in the world simultaneously and interconnectedly with one another, does make for a very very complex kind of fragmented system. So it's hard to make general statements about the way the direction or where the world is and where the directions it's going. Because, sure, China is far more powerful than it was. India is also more powerful and more assertive, and many other parts of the world countries are too. And I think that is a really important power shift that has changed mentalities. It has been something which has been coming for a long time. Um, So, for example, when you go back to Bandung, 1955, the um, uh, non-aligned movement, 1961, The G77 and the new international economic order in the 70s, then the formation of the BRICS a bit later on, rise of China and so on, the world is very, very different. It has now got more actors who are more powerful, more assertive, and more aware. And a lot of these actors uh, have had a lot more than one century of humiliation. They now feel their power in ways which are quite interesting and different, and they, they remember the past of Western colonial power and so on and so forth. And I think that kind of, that resentment, which which is also operational, you could see it, right? With the Ukraine war crisis and those refugees, right? When black students were turned away at the border or taken off buses or trains, when they were heading to to sort of get out of Ukraine and so on, the whole world saw that. And you look at what vast ways of the world, a lot of people say, well, this has got nothing to do with us. This This is how the West behaves. Western refugees, white refugees, one way, Syrian or Libyan or Iraqi or anybody else, a completely different kind of coverage, different kind of attitude and so on. Just in the last uh, few weeks, Britain has been talking about deporting people, uh, refugees from here to Rwanda, for example, and so on. So you've got all that kind of stuff going on alongside these. I don't know if they're called interdependencies, but interpenetrations. So that you do actually have a certain level at which cooperation and so on is taking place. It's just a part of daily economic, financial, diplomatic, political life. But all these are kind of complexifying factors. And, I, you know, I, I would say that while we talk about relative decline of the West and of the United States and the crises within, they remain very, very powerful. So the response to the invasion by Russia was an attempt to virtually cancel Russia. Right? If you look at every sporting organization, cultural, musical, private corporations, people are not even asked to do it. Universities not even asked to do anything, are declaring themselves in one way or another and joining programs or cutting programs, isolating Russia as much as possible, and so on. And that, and then the sanctions regime, and the, the sort of attempt to try to cut off Russia in various ways—that is a huge amount of power. No one, no other force has power of that type. Who else has a NATO? Who else has a force like that, which can galvanize itself in so many, so such powerful ways? They're not entering the Ukraine war uh, directly, but they are certainly there, and they have been for the last seven, eight years. Six hundred million dollars worth of aid poured into. Ukraine from the U.S. government alone, and then all sorts of programs with NATO by the RAND Corporation and many others. So what you've got is then a kind of relative decline, but in absolute terms, the United States remains militarily in 800 military bases, in space, in the sky, on the land, on the sea, under the water, and in cyber. There is no one else who challenges it on all of those fronts. It had full spectrum power. So what we have is a kind of funny, lumpy shaped world in which the old is sort of getting a bit older, uh, but it's not finished yet. And the kind of level of sort of resurgence, which we saw with the Ukraine war breaking out, uh, was a kind of shot in the arm as far as they saw it. But it also seems to now be retreating into, well, this thing is a bit more expensive than we thought. Perhaps Russia is going to be more resilient than we thought. Can we continue to pour all this money into Ukraine? When we look at our own sort of crises at home, uh, people are suffering in all kinds of ways. So it's a very dynamic, fluid situation. And one final thing I would say is that if you look at the sort of shale gas revolution and the fracking and so on, and which has made the U.S. energy independent and an energy exporter, uh, it has changed the geopolitics of so many relationships as well. And it could well be in the longer run that one of the kind of contributing factors to the Russian attack on Ukraine, which may explain why, why now, is that in January 2022, I think uh, from what I've seen of some people's research, is that uh, the, the U.S. exported more uh, liquefied, liquefied natural gas to the EU uh, than Russia did. And that's the first time that's happened. So in the longer run, that geopolitical shift uh, in energy dependence that, the, that the Russia had in its hands of, Eastern U- of Europe uh, <laughs> is slipping away. And the invasion of the Ukraine, in a way, and the parts of Ukraine which are most energy rich, Is actually a kind of geopolitical move to shore up Russian power, alongside many other developments like NATO and so on, as as is claimed. So, so the world is actually incredibly fluid, I would say. Um, And I'm not sure multipolarity uh, multipolarity is too neat. I would say it's a very messy. um, Yeah, it's a it's a messy multipolarity, if you like. And it has not sort of gelled just yet. And what it seems to have given is it has a kind of democratizing effect on world politics. Just the fact that you have now every state has more choices. You are no longer stuck with there's only one game in town and it's called the United States. There are other economic powers with which you partner up and you are able to sort of develop relationships and build prosperity or whatever it may be. And the U.S. isn't the only one, so that there are other poles uh, which of attraction, uh, which mean that uh, there are more kind of hedging and balancing um, and playing off one against the other. There's more room for maneuver for more states than there probably ever was. And that's, in a way, an objectively democratizing kind of effect, I would say, in world politics.
0: Yeah, for the longest time. Uh, I've been a declinist. uh, I mean, myself, I was born in the U.S. I'm an American, but I've I've viewed the U.S. as collapsing, you know, of the vein of more Berman Berman and and other such intellectuals. But I've interviewed Michael Beckley a few years ago who says that the U.S. will remain, his thesis is the opposite, that the U.S. is going to remain the superpower. And I'm starting to see that point kind of like what you're saying, that the empire is much more resilient and I don't see it um collapsing like many people today critics of the Empire are are saying that I think it's still got a good run uh mm. in it and and I want to get your thoughts on you know what what Johan Galton calls the internal uh contradictions the threats mm. from within the U.S uh, the Empire mm. the authoritarian politics the declining uh, economy and the polarization and talk of of civil war uh and so mm. on um you know I I view the January 6th event a bit differently than you but again mm. You know, feel, feel completely free to disagree. Uh, I People call it insurrection. I, I see uh, a government hand having been in, involved, but nevertheless, the outcome uh, is the same because, you know, there's this talk of, let's say, Trumpian fascism. But, for example, the last two years, I mean, I've been telling you, I, I, I've been having the U.S. government under the Biden presidency, deplatforming me, canceling, you know, my PayPal. Uh, so I'm experiencing now under Biden uh, fascism as as well. And I, I guess the best way that I would d- describe it is I, I see it as a kind of a bipartisan uh fascism, if you will. You know, for me, it's the same. I've seen it under the Obama regime, the Bush regime the clinton mm. regime uh the biden the trump regime and for mm. me it's like the military industrial complex uh, is mm. not left or right it's more like it's the bird uh mm. and then you've got the left-wing mm. dams and the right-wing republicans they are the wings right. of that mm. yeah. fascist sort of uh bird and so um i see america and europe kind of going more uh mm. authoritarian and we're seeing a lot of examples and then as well as you said there's this talk of a second civil war in america and we see this great polarization and so many yeah. problems, and so many problems uh, at home. Uh, you know, any any thoughts on uh, yeah. th- these issues in, in the U.S. Or, or if you see this hmm. more tended toward authoritarianism in the West in general?
1: Yeah. Well, no, you're absolutely right. I, I I I can't really disagree with anything that you've said because factually, evidentially, what you're saying is is right. The difficulty, I mean, so okay. Where I put myself, I suppose, for, on the sixth of January, is yeah, it's it's a kind of elite populist, elite authoritarian populist insurrectionary coup. It, I mean, we are seeing. I think we've seen the evidence over the last more than one year of the kind of the network going out from the White House and through the various tentacles into the more extreme elements as well. But over the last previous four years, and I guess really. And what that, I think, overall shows, and it's not like Trump just came along out of nowhere. The fact is that the basis of Trumpism has been building for many decades and that, in effect, Trump, under those specific conditions, um, managed to kind of coalesce and weld these tendencies together in in what basically became then the presidency and, and is not still defeated, if you like, politically speaking. And so I guess what you could say is that that was that, what that is symptomatic of is of the general crisis of the United States system of power, system of economy, which basically has impoverished more and more people, such that even middle-class people who did all the right things—they studied hard at school, they went to university, they—they're prepared to go to work. They're so indebted. That the graduate positions are so uh, relatively fewer and less well paid that even those who act according to the American dream and the pull yourself up and so on and so forth actually cannot make it at all and that they are suffering in all kinds of ways and that this middle-class dream, American dream, has been virtually kind of eviscerated and so on. So that is a kind of general crisis of, if you like, the hyper-neoliberalism, which was released after the end of the Cold War in particular, when, in effect, you know, You don't have to be a supporter of the Soviet Union as a socialist country or anything like that. But the fact that there was this rival ideology, even if it was just a set of terms, it had a massive effect on the kind of the the politics, ideological politics of the Western countries. As long as there was this left-wing thing out there which said the state X, Y, and Z, it actually had an effect. But once it was disappeared, if you like, the triumphalism in part was to do with the fact you got nobody now. You can't even say that your experiment in in socialism and away from the market and the corporation has collapsed, etc. And the effects of that politically were very, very powerful. And so, when you in the nineteen nineties, Clinton, you know, kind of uh, unleashes the banks and sort of the Glass Steagall Act and so on are abolished, and banks can basically speculate with ordinary savers' funds. You in effect have this kind of hyper globalization, hyper. Neoliberalism and so on released. And the effect of that, politically speaking, economically speaking, socially, culturally, is devastating to practically every part of the sort of dominant majority of the American population, white and black and anybody else. So that, if you like, is the crisis of that entire system and the resistances both within, within both main political parties. So that tendencies to against the establishment of the Democratic Party and of the Republican Party in the Tea Party movement, the Occupy Wall Street and those things, and later on Bernie Sanders and then, of course, Donald Trump. These are people who reject the entire two-party system as established. So you're absolutely right. There is a bipartisan. The, the dominant system is bipartisan, but it tries to contain within it various tiny kind of tendencies, and often is very successful in doing that by channeling them in through the party into power with Trump, I think they failed, if you like, because he's an, he was an unknown quantity and he was not disciplined and so on. And so that for that in that regard, I felt that was a kind of heading the U.S. towards open forms of fascism within the kind of American system. Um, and I was very pleased and glad when he was defeated in November twenty twenty. I didn't expect. A revolution uh, because of Biden. Because we know everything about Biden. When the, when when the U.S. was marching against the Vietnam War, he wasn't. When the U.S. was marching for civil rights, he wasn't. He was of that age. He should have been marching around that time, uh, at a time when racism was uh, being sort of fought. He was sort of aligning himself with segregationist senators and so on and and so on and so on. We all know that story. So he's a he's much more of a weather vane politician than he is a signpost. Uh, you know, he he, he responds to the which way the wind is kind of blowing. But that underlying crisis of authority, which has been generated by that very system itself, which, which the pandemic then exposed as fully as anybody could possibly, at the, the inequality of suffering, the inequality of healthcare provision and so on, who had to continue to work and who did not have to continue to work and so on. I think that showed up everything that you need to see. That, and that If you like, it's a bipartisan thing because Biden hasn't changed very much on that front either. So the only thing that's really changed is the moderation of the language, the shift in the vocabulary towards diversity and inclusion and so on and so forth, while continuing to try to defeat that resistance. And so in a way, the, the sort of drift towards authoritarianism and repression and so on, whether it's under Trump or other than Biden or whoever comes next. Isn't going to change very much. But the, I think the rhetoric shifts. And the rhetoric, in a way, reflected the fact that there's very large amounts of discontent with the Trump regime, that, that he managed to galvanize a lot of people um, uh, into voting against him. But is the danger of authoritarianism, of deportation, of police violence, and those kind of things gone? No, it isn't. The dangers of the pandemic, the, the lack of healthcare, Etc. I mean, there has been some spending on uh, voting on uh, infrastructure and that kind of thing as well. But in terms of America's global role, uh, its military role, and so on, very little has changed indeed. So yes, it is a bipartisan kind of military-industrial complex, if you like, uh, which it remains. But it has its kind of, if you like, its sort of more velvety, uh, velvet glove with iron fist uh, as opposed to the iron fist inside an iron fist. Uh, and that that's the kind of <laughs> democratic choice uh, which appears to be available.
0: And we shouldn't forget, it was about a century ago, uh, decorated uh, soldier Smedley Butler was recruited, I guess, by the corporations and these fascist tendencies to lead a oh. coup to create, establish a oh. fascist America. And he blew the whistle oh. and spoke out against it and, and stopped it. Oh. So we see over time, there there are these authoritarian, authoritarian tendencies always trying to establish you know uh, hmm. uh, this dictatorship are, are there is there any other uh you know given that the context of what we've talked about hmm. any other important points uh you wanted to bring up or a uh, final thought uh for us
1: um no i i think probably we've covered a lot of a lot of ground there but uh thank you very much for your for your questions hmm. it's a big complicated subject i feel very hard to kind of uh, you know, sort of do it so briefly and do it justice. But uh, but thank you for your questions.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll recommend people again to your book uh, and your research and publications. Is there a uh, uh, you know you, you're on Twitter? Uh, are there any other websites uh, that you'd like to let us know about, or or, or books uh, or, or projects that you're working on?
1: Um, well, there's this global webinar series that my colleagues and I have been running for the last couple of years. We just finished a series of six we have the recordings um we just did one on u.s foreign policy deconstructed um i could send you the the link
0: i've been, uh, I've, been I've been watching some of those so i will include them in, in the link description yeah
1: all right okay well those that playlist of six recordings is now available um so i could send you the link to that if you want to sort of then use it in whichever way you like but it's just one of those things where kind of having this sort of conversations with people uh, from a variety of different locations, backgrounds, perspectives, on some big in- interesting questions. It's really been really interesting. And I've learned a huge amount of kind of contextual knowledge and knowledge on areas that I've wanted to know about. But, you know, any one person is, the time is always limited. And 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 I guess you probably find this with your podcast as well, interviewing different people yeah. with different, expertise and perspectives you know the more you do it the more you kind of kind of retain and it builds into your way of thinking and mindset Uh, sometimes reinforcing what you know and sometimes kind of challenging what you know as well so it's so i've really enjoyed those and um, and we're going to kind of try to carry on doing them next year as well
0: yeah that's been my motto here on geopolitics and empire I, i talk to everyone even of different ideologies and you take Mm. uh, the stuff that's good that, that um, Mm. you can learn from. And if there's something you disagree with, well, you just, you discard that and you take, uh, you can always learn something from people from different walks of life. And um, Mm. yeah, I I will again, include all of your links to, to your book to encourage people to follow you on Twitter uh, as well. I'll include the links to the webinars. And again, thank you for um, being on geopolitics and empire.
1: All right. Thank you very much. That was really enjoyable. Thank you.